0: Well, thank you very much indeed for inviting me, Clark, and um, it's an honor to be speaking at this Libri group. So uh, what I want to do is introduce you to Tom Paine. Now some people may wonder why I'm talking about Tom Paine, and uh, I think that will become clear uh, in a while. Tom Paine is best known as one of the fathers of the American Revolution, uh, one of the key figures in the American Revolution, and, generally now regarded as the person who wrote the um, Declaration of Independence. And this was disputed for many years, but now I believe it's been uh, accepted that he was the person through various types of um, handwriting analysis. Bob Dylan uh, sang about Tom Paine in 1968, rather surprisingly. Uh, he was one of the earliest people to take an interest in him. And I think it's quite significant because um, the words of the song, which is on the John Wesley Harding uh, album, are ambiguous. And uh, Payne, uh, I, I suggest that perhaps if you get the chance, you listen to Dylan's song about him, Um And Payne is sort of, as I said, in the shadows. Um, He's one of the people that, while he was important in the American Revolution, um, he was, uh, as um, one of the guides at the Boston Museum said, a naughty boy. Uh, I went to Boston, I was in Boston, I, I knew there was a portrait of Payne in the museum and I went to see it and it wasn't there in the, hall where they would all the other fathers of the revolution. And I went up to one of the people there and I asked, I said, well, you know, where's Tom Paine? And he said, oh, he's a naughty boy. We keep him in the basement. So uh, Paine's fortunes go up and down. And here's a painting of Paine with the other revolutionaries. And this is Tom Paine over here, if you can see. I don't know if you can see my arrow, but I put a yellow line there to point to where he is in the painting of the um, drawing up of the American uh, Declaration of Independence and uh, Bill of Rights and all of these things. He played an important role in the framing of the American Constitution. Um, One major article on pain is by a British sociologist, Susan Budd. the loss of faith reasons for unbelief among members of the secular movement in England, 1850 to 1950. And she shows that when I said she's not important for understanding pain, she uh, isn't actually writing about pain, but she points out that almost every single major atheistic thinker in Britain in the 19th century, or agnostic thinker in the 19th century, the rationalist critics of Christianity, were all influenced very profoundly by Paine. Payne's book, The Age of Reason, was the book that was the um, cornerstone of the 19th century uh, revolt against the Christian tradition. Now, uh, having said that, um, this was in Britain, but it is also true of America. If you There aren't any specific articles like Bud's article, but there are uh, lots of references to Paine by secular writers. And Paine is best known for, let me put this up, he, his first published book is Common Sense. And this was a book in which Paine argued that America ought to be independent from British rule. And he's known for that. And he was the propagandist for the American Revolution and the American revolutionaries. And so this is what he's remembered for today. And he's normally referred to when people talk about him as Tom Paine. Um, I was giving a lecture actually in Seoul in Korea, and uh, I talked about Tom Paine. And afterwards, an American professor who was teaching at the university there came up to me and objected very strongly to what I'd said because I was um, insulting him by calling him Tom Paine. He should be Thomas Paine. Well, that said, I'm still gonna call him Tom Paine, but some people get edgy about this. I don't think generally though, most people hold that view, but obviously some people do. And Thomas Paine uh, published not only Common Sense, but his other great book on politics is The Rights of Man, when he lays out the groundwork for supporting the American Revolution, for giving it an intellectual basis. His other book, which comes much later, it comes, he was written between 1794 and 1796 is The Age of Reason. And The Age of Reason is the book that he was best known for in the 19th century once the American Revolution was over and you had the establishment of the United States of America. Um, And The Age of Reason was a book which, quite frankly, embarrassed people like George Washington. They made uh, the other leaders of the revolution, many of whom were Christian, made uh, snide remarks about Paine and uh, didn't really like him all that much for his rants about religion and particularly Christianity. Mm. And so Paine became rather notorious and in some ways um, was sort of sidelined by the other leaders of the American revolution for his handling of these things. Now, uh, Pain at the very beginning of the Age of Reason, outlines is the context of what he's talking about. Uh, the context were revolutionary politics. And particularly in the background for Pain was the French Revolution. He actually went over to France during the revolution and was jailed for a while uh, by some of the more radical revolutionaries and eventually he was released and he got back to America. And he then published The Age of Reason because he said it was about false systems of government and false theology and the theology he saw as something that encouraged the false systems of government and all of the things which he uh, objected to. Paine also begins very openly in his age of reason by outlining his own beliefs. Why is he writing this book and what does he believe? And so he begins by saying, well, people make their voluntary and individual professions of faith and he's going to make his as well. And he believes in one God and no more. Now, um. On the left of, I think it's on the left of your screen, it may be on the right, there's a picture of John Pearson. John Pearson was the Bishop of Chester in the 17th century and uh, author of a book which was called An Exposition of the Creed. And Pearson's Exposition of the Creed was the standard text in British and American universities right down to the mid-1990s. 19th century, and when one reads that I believe in one God and no more, this is really a dig at Pearson and Christians generally. Many people might read it and think, well, you know, he did believe in God uh, and no more. Well, what's and no more? Yeah, so what's he doesn't believe in Islam or Hinduism or anything like that. So nothing wrong with that um that's what, not wasn't what pain was meaning pain meant very clearly that he did not believe and he spells this out in great detail in the christian trinity because he believed that the trinity was a belief in three gods who were somehow rather crazily put together by christians and uh, this was something which he objected to he thought it was against all reason it was a, an irrational belief and he had to speak out against it. Pain was in fact what technically is known as a deist. That is, he believed in a God, but not the God of the Bible. And he believed that the evidence for this God came from the universe, from the stars, the Milky Way, looking out, and that you see the universe is rather um, like a pocket watch. Now. One's got to remember in the uh, 17th century and 18th centuries, pocket watches were a great um, innovation. And the pocket watch that Payne is referring to in the 18th century would have been the sort of thing he had. And if you look, if you've ever seen a pocket watch, an old one, not one of the um, digital ones we use today, They've got a front which you can close. So when you want another time, you've got to open the watch and look at the front. They've also got a similar uh, back, and the back is like the front and it opens. And you can therefore put oil in it and things like that. You can check the mechanism um, and there is uh, somewhere to wind it up. So it's a spring-driven thing and Paine believed that the universe was like this. It was like the mechanism of a pocket watch or a clock. And uh, it had been created. There was obviously an intelligent mind behind it, but not the God of the Bible that Christians talked about. He thought this was wrong, that you had a God who had created the universe and then let go. And this is, as I said, what people call deism. There were a number of deists, particularly in the 18th century and then into the 19th century, but deism by the 19th century began to wane and became more agnosticism. But in the 18th century, it was a strong movement. And uh, these were people who found the miracles of Christianity, Difficult, and they, they couldn't really believe that god would intervene in this world and take an interest in human beings so this was Payne's background um the reason why one should be interested in him is that he moved his book moved away from the intellectuals of the time of his century and that's really uh the 18th and not the 19th century, his influence in the 19th century, but he grew up and was influenced by the 18th century. Um, The people around him um, wanted to believe in some sort of God, but they didn't want a Christian God, some of the intellectuals anyway, but the majority of people thought that, um, or the majority of intellectuals by the end of the 18th century conceded that Christianity had more or less won the battle. Um, People like Bishop Pearson and others in the 18th century argued back against the deists and seemed to have won. And what Payne did was take this battle away from the intellectuals and move it into the um, street to give it to the common man. And this is where he made most of his impact. But as you'll see, he also profoundly influenced a lot of intellectuals. And so he says that he's going to begin by telling you what he doesn't believe in. He doesn't believe in the creed professed by the Jewish church, by the Roman church, the Greek church, or by the Turkish church, or by the Protestant church, nor any other church that he knows about. My mind is my church. And this is the emphasis on reason, Um, And when he talked about the Turkish church, he meant Islam. So he sets himself against these things. And uh, the American sociologist Robert Beller, who died quite recently, in fact, um, he wrote an article on religious evolution in which he says that to a very large extent, this idea of my mind is my church became part of the American creed. And Americans, he argued, um, put a certain degree of reason into their Christianity uh, above and beyond what people used to do in the past. And this idea of you've got to think things through for yourself became commonly accepted. And his example is, uh, Bella says, if you don't believe me, just look at the Roman Catholics. Uh, The birth rate among Roman Catholics in America is same as the birth rate among Protestants. And yet the Catholic Church condemns birth control. So what's happening? Well, obviously, the Catholics are taking no notice of the Pope and the priests, and they're doing what they think they should do for their own well-being. They're not practicing birth control. So he says their mind becomes their church. Um Paine uh, makes it very explicit that there are other religions he calls them churches uh, and they have books which they claim to be the revelation of God but these are things that he rejects I disbelieve them all and he claims and this is where he becomes very interesting because Paine makes a transition from 18th century rationalism and deism which was critical of the intellectual um, basis of Christianity to the causes for Christian belief in terms of um society why why on earth do people believe he's one of the first first people to really write about this from uh, an agnostic position you had people attacking belief but to reflect on what causes people to believe which becomes a problem for pain is that he says i had given my reasons for belief the bible is not the word of god and why do you believe in it well you, you believe in it basically for the same reason that muslims believe in the quran and that's because your parents taught you that education plays a role so what he does when he's doing this um, is actually taking a sociological look at Christianity. He didn't call it that in those days and applying a sociological criticism. And so this is something that has built up since Payne's time and it's a new way of attacking Christianity. Um, And also uh, Robert Beller in talking uh, about loss of faith in the study of religion, he's got another article, Religious Studies as New Religion, And Bella makes the point that um, really if you look at Christianity and if you look at the development of religious studies and the pluralism in our society, you find that Payne had a good point. That basically a lot of people lose their faith. They may be pious as children, but they lose their faith when they're exposed to other religious systems. Um, Paine also makes really what may sound to many Christians an absurd statement, and it says that Christianity as a system of faith is a species of atheism. Basically, what he's doing is saying that it's not like deism where you've got God who's created the universe and then really takes no notice of it. Christianity has introduced another factor into this. And the factor that Christianity introduced was the personal God, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is a man. So what's that, Payne says? That's atheism. And uh, because it's a belief in man, not a belief in God. So he doesn't mind a transcendent God, but he doesn't want God to interfere in individuals' lives, people's lives. And to do this, he backs up his arguments by appealing to history. Now, this is a very famous cross in the north of England. It's known as the Castle Cross, and it's a very small church uh, near Carlisle uh, on the uh, Scottish border. And uh, on this cross, the interesting thing about it is that you've got the Christian story engraved on one side of it. You can see Abraham and Isaac. These are pictures of the cross. And then on the other side, you've got various pagan symbols. Now, Paine says that if you look at the early church, you see they embraced many things from paganism. And Christianity, therefore, is a sort of an amalgam between a real belief in God, in deistic God, and paganism. Christianity has a mythology, he claims, that sprang out of heathen pagan, heathen mythology, and therefore Christians are tainted in, in their beliefs. In actual fact, what one has got to add to this is that uh, Payne claims that this went on and many people follow him. You find lots of books written uh, right down until people like Bishop Spong and others who have taken up the theme that really some pagan ideas entered into the Christian tradition early on. Uh, but today, no serious historian would uh, argue that the Newcastle Cross and symbol, similar things actually represent uh, a mix of paganism Christianity. What they actually were intended to symbolize was the triumph of Christianity over the pagan world. This is a very different interpretation to the one given by Paine. Uh, and similarly, Paine claims that the Roman Catholic uh, adoration of Mary really is um, an adoration of the Greek goddess Athene and the Greek goddess uh, Fortuna, that he he tries to make the case. And if you don't know very much about the history, um, it might sound very convincing that these ancient um, goddesses all had features that were similar to Mary. Well, in a certain sense, they did have features similar to Mary because uh, they were women. But beyond that, there, there's no real evidence of actual incorporation into the Christian belief system. In fact, Christians went to great lengths not to do this. And one needs, therefore, to understand a little bit about church history and what, um, what was going on with some of these things. And a very good source of this, and if you haven't read it, I suggest you pick up a copy and read it, um, is known as uh, Bede's Ecclesiastical History of the English People. Now, the Venerable Bede was a Roman Catholic priest, or a, a priest at that point, between uh, 673 and 735 AD. He lived in the north of England. He lived up, if you can see, I don't know if you can see my arrow, but he lived near Northumbria uh, and Lindisfarne. And Bede wrote, he was a monk at Lindisfarne, he wrote a history of the English people and the impact of Christianity upon the English people. And the importance of this is, for pain, um, he reproduces in that. And I apologize here, I've not got um, the page reference because I was taking this from an old PowerPoint slide and I looked for my copy of Bede and I've got to confess I can't find it. Um, it's somewhere in my pile of books, but uh, as soon as this Is over. I'm sure I'll turn around and find that I've been looking at it all the time. But in any case, the quotation which I ought to have put uh, a reference to when I made this slide was that uh, the missionaries to England wrote to Pope Gregory and asked how they should um, go about mission uh, because. When the missionaries first started to convert the pagan English, and England had been under Roman uh, rule for some 300 years, um, they found that there were some many um, really excellent buildings. Every little village had a building, uh, and one was better than all the houses and everything else, and that was the local pagan temple. And so, what do you do with that? The people become Christian, you're a Christian missionary. Uh, do you tell them to burn down the temple and pull it down because it, it's uh, not uh, it's, it's pagan? What what can you do? And the pope wrote back and he said, well, what you've got to do is destroy the idols, um, take out the anything connected to the pagan religion and then consecrate it, re-consecrate it as a Christian church purify the building use the building a building's a building uh you can use it for the glory of god and so you don't have to destroy it and so obviously things did get taken over into christianity but they didn't get taken over in the way that pain suggests they were taken over and given entirely um, a christian meaning now pain moves on from this and he goes into an attack on miracles and other aspects of Christian belief. And um, prior to Payne, and it's debatable whether he knew him or not, uh, David Hume had written about miracles. David Hume was the famous Scottish philosopher and atheist um, who lived in Edinburgh and taught at the university. And Hume described miracles as a violation of natural law. And Hume said, look, these miracles in the Bible just didn't happen. They couldn't happen because we know that the sun rises and sinks, the moon comes up. It all follows a pattern, which is a pattern of natural law. And this is at a time when science was beginning to take hold. The, you had the scientific revolution in the 17th century, and the idea of science was becoming popular. And uh David Hume's definition took a very rigid view of the way things work. And it was in some ways, although Hume is still taught in any university class you go to on uh, religion, um, if you're in the philosophy department, uh, what Paine does is more clever than Hume, because Paine says, Oh, yeah, you know, people have argued about miracles and they, they, some people say they're natural laws uh, and it's a violation of natural law. But unless we know the extent of those laws and what are co- called the powers of nature, we're not able to judge whether they are wonderful or miraculous or anything else. He says, in other words, a miracle may be just a normal happening. That's very rare. We don't know the nature of it, but that doesn't make it true either. So uh, he admits or he, he sort of fudges it a little bit, but well, maybe some miracles did happen in the past. But if they did, it was because they were part of natural law. Whereas David Hume had said they just couldn't possibly happen, despite whatever evidence people might come up with. Uh, and this leads us to another key point about um. Uh, Paine's criticism of religion, and this is a poster uh, about uh, 18th century picture of um, unbelief. What Paine says is that the problem with Christian belief and with miracles is that a thing which everybody is required to believe requires proof and evidence of it that should be equal to all that if somebody claims a miracle happened, everybody should be able to see it. And the fact is, most of us haven't seen biblical miracles. We haven't seen the biblical miracles anyway, definitely, but we haven't even seen any miracles. And therefore, um, they're not open to all. They're not uh, easily seen and uh, discussed. They occur in faraway places very often. Sometimes they do anyway. Uh, But basically, they're the basis of the Bible. And why should we believe them? They're they're out of the ordinary. And we we can't test them. So we can't believe them. Now, as I say, I think he's both right and wrong here. Uh, Right and wrong in the way he uses the statement and makes scientific evidence impossible because everyone can't observe things like atoms and complex experiments. I mean, if you applied... Um, Payne's criticism to even ordinary science. Why would anyone want to believe it? The resurrection may be uh, something which most people haven't seen, but there are all sorts of other reasons for believing that the testimony about it was true. Um, And when we turn on an electric light, um, if you're like me anyway, uh, you turn on the light, you come into your room, and uh, the light goes on, you don't think about what caused it. And if somebody asks you how it came on, uh, you might be able to say something about electricity running through wires, but how many of us actually know how these things happen? And I would suggest it's very few, and therefore we're getting into uh, a tricky area. Um, And then he, uh, Payne, makes a very interesting argument about the resurrection. And this is one which is important uh, for any of you if you've done any biblical studies. And one of the reasons that I'm talking about pain, um, if you've studied religion at university or studied theology at university, you'll know that um, when we come to talking about biblical texts, originally in the 19th century, you had a lot of what was called source criticism and so on. And this type of biblical criticism has given way to new forms of criticism that emphasize the uh, story itself, the nature of a biblical account in terms of a story. And what Paine does is pioneer this way of criticizing the Bible, because he says, as the account of the resurrection and the ascension, it is a necessary part Of the story of his birth. So Paine's saying that when you read the Bible, the Bible was written as a very clever story, and unless you recognize that, then you don't understand it. Now there's again a truth to this, but it's important because the way he's taking it and the way he points to it is to destroy the story, and I think this is something which enters into a lot of uh, biblical studies, that what starts out as a sincere quest and understanding becomes a way of dismissing the stories themselves. And Paine makes the point then, uh, which follows through, that not a line of what is called the New Testament uh, is Jesus's writings. Um, And Paine believed that the New Testament was written at least 300 years after the death of Jesus. Now, we know from the Rylands fragments in Manchester uh, that they occurred, they were written very soon after the death of Jesus, at least at the latest, um, maybe 50, 60 years after Jesus's death, you get the beginnings of the New Testament. So these aren't things that were distant and could be altered and had been altered. They were things that could be written down by. People are preserved by people who would actually witness the events. But Payne uh, attacks on that. As to Moses, again, you, this just gives you a taste for him. Uh, he launches a strong attack on the Pentateuch uh, and argues that Moses isn't the author of any of these things. And the point is that when Mo- Payne was writing this and saying this, this wasn't what the majority of people believed. And even many of the agnostics or the deists hadn't gone quite as far as pain. So pain sets a tone which is taken up, as I say, by biblical critics. And so he explains the prophets of the Bible as Jewish poets and itinerant preachers. And this again is a position which is taken up and presented in universities today in terms of biblical scholarship. Uh, you hear again and again that the prophets were poets, that they were preachers, um, and that they didn't have the authority, they didn't have the vision, which traditionally Christians had assigned to them. Um, so pain has a direct influence on biblical criticism. And the point I want to make is in... Trying to understand pain, while he writes as a popular writer and doesn't go into the seeming academic depth of later scholarship, if one looks at a lot of the scholarship, particularly 19th century German scholarship, you find that his arguments are repeated. And in actual fact, there's a lot of evidence that German scholars like Wellhausen, the great uh, Old Testament critic, uh, were strongly influenced by Paine and had read him. Paine was translated into German almost as soon, or the Age of Reason was translated into German almost as soon as it was published. And uh, it was popular in pra- places like Göttingen and other universities in Germany. So Paine has his influence there. Um, and what Paine wants to say the biblical critics don't go quite as far as Paine in this, there is a certain honesty to Paine, is that the Bible really is a corrupt and brutalizing document that he totally rejects. He, Payne makes no... Um, he doesn't hide his, det- his detestation of the Bible. And I think what you get in a lot of biblical scholarship, which people are exposed to today, is the same sort of argument but dressed up in a way to make it nice and scientific and historical. People don't come out bluntly and say the Bible is rubbish because they're teaching it and they've got a university job teaching it. Uh, So the Bible is important to read and look at. And uh, we can um, consider what it's about we wouldn't say that it's a story of wick- wickedness anymore, because after the Nazis, you can't say that sort of thing. But nevertheless, underneath, I think there is this undercurrent. And uh, Paine goes on to attack very strongly the Jews. Paine's anti-Semitism is remarkable. Uh, he thinks that they was, the Jews were um, a people who were, committed to lies, and had base characters, as he says there. Uh, So he totally rejects Judaism, and he says, we know nothing of the ancient Gentile world, as it is called, and what it was like before the time of the Jews, but as far as we know, uh, the Gentiles were a just and moral people, and then importantly, not addicted like the Jews to cruelty and revenge. So there's a very strong anti-Semitism, which undermines, I would suggest, the whole of Payne's writings. And when one looks at his writings, you see it. And when one looks at modern biblical criticism, which has its roots to a very large extent in Payne's work, is one finds there is a um, unexpressed anti-Semitism in a lot of what is written. No one would... Dare to say anything like that, and people uh, get around it by saying, "Well, you know, all sorts of things." But uh, I think Pain comes out honestly saying what the logic of his argument is. And as to the Christian faith, it's a system of atheism, which is where I began. Uh, pain is a key figure in 19th century thought, in that he influenced many people. Now. Uh, I've did various courses at university on Feuerbach and other people, and I've kept my eye on courses taught on Feuerbach. You may not know Feuerbach, Ludwig Feuerbach. He was one of the major influences on um, Karl Marx. And when I was reading Feuerbach, and when I read Pain, things clicked. A lot of the things Feuerbach says are very similar to what Paine says. And he said, of course, here, the famous American philosopher, Tom Paine. He actually uses the word Tom Paine. Uh, and Feuerbach's view is that man is the God of Christianity. Anthropology, the mystery of Christian theology. In other words, this all this talk about God and man, and man inventing God, which comes from Paine, finds root in Feuerbach's book, The Essence of Christianity. And this is the book that influenced Karl Marx. And in particular, uh, Feuerbach also influenced a lot of other people like Sigmund Freud. And Feuerbach argues that religion is itself a projection. Uh, Man projects his being into objectivity and makes himself an object, and thus man is the object of god man is really god the human race is god and this is where uh this is projection idea everything we value uh, is a projection love justice mercy power reason kindness fairness these are human attributes which never occur in a pure form in all of the families that on my little picture there are problems and difficulties and some may want things that others have people aren't satisfied but they project what's missing in their lives onto god this is Feuerbach's argument Uh, and the resurrection is again a projection because people don't want to die they want to um, they want to have some assurance of an afterlife and the story of the resurrection is a psychological sop to people this is what Feuerbach is arguing on the basis of what Paine said. Uh, and heaven, again, is wish fulfillment. So uh, Feuerbach and Paine put forward an idea about faith, uh, a new type of faith, that miracles are essential to Christian faith, but the supernatural wish for them can't be realized that the um, world of all these beliefs is an illusion which Feuerbach argues it's only natural that people should worship, not nature in general, but the nature of their own country. Now, this is an important shift uh, because it is this country to which I belong that made me what I am. I myself am not a man as such, but I'm a particular individual. And for example, he says, I'm a German and my life is inseparably bound up with a specific soil and a specific climate. Now, the funny thing is, when I was being taught about this, no one ever pointed the echoes in this of what actually became national socialism, but I hope you can see them. They're there. And Karl Marx, who was influenced by Feuerbach, said that this for Germany, the criticism of religion is complete overall. And Marx continued his own or developed his own criticisms on the basis of Feuerbach and on the basis of Tom Paine. In fact, it's amazing in Marx's actual writings. If you look at his actual writings, he makes numerous references to Tom Paine, but mainly, uh, on political rather than religious issues. Another person I'll move rather quickly now who was influenced by um, Payne was David Friedrich Strauss. And Strauss uh, was also influenced by Feuerbach. He developed the idea of Feuerbach. And uh, I don't know why they'd come up like that. Let me go back. Uh, Strauss said, um, Feuerbach was right when he declared that the origin, not the not just the origin, the essence of religion is the wish. And the wish in he states is the wish for immortality. And you find this in poets and music and the importance of your land. And again, this is something, this stress on land and my people, my folk, my inheritance is something which is very important in these writers coming out of pain. Uh, Feuerbach, uh, Strauss rather, uh, develops it in a book called The Old Faith and the New. And if you look at this, it was published in German in 17, in 1872, it was available in in English a year later. So these people had an immediate impact. And this is what I would call uh, ancestral neo-paganism. And here you again, as I say, you can read uh, this from the old faith and the new about the importance of land and the people, not God. God is an illusion. And this message is then taken up by writers like George Eliot. And uh, I'm sure you all have read something of George Eliot. Um, She in her atheism or her agnosticism draws upon Strauss in particular, she draws upon uh, Feuerbach and she translates some of their works. And so you get a connection now, Samuel Samuel Butler is another one who did this sort of thing. Uh, And then uh, most importantly, uh, an Englishman you may not have heard of, Houston Stuart Chamberlain who was Richard Wagner's son-in-law. He wrote a book, The Foundations of the the 19th Century. He was an Englishman who went to live in Germany, settled in Germany, and he developed uh, a view of um, religion, which again is based upon, and you can read it all, what he called the Aryan worldview. So this leads us right to the Nazis. And pain had an afterlife. Uh, the Nazis, um, this is a book, a thesis published in 1938, a, a doctoral thesis about pain. There were many of them written in Nazi Germany. Uh, this is another book written about him. Uh, this was the book, Tom Paine by Blunk, and uh, the Gestapo said, Everybody, every member of the Gestapo had got to read it because it's an example of what we're striving towards. Uh, so, on that uh, note, I put in some slides about tax and pain, but we can finish it at that. And uh, I will take your questions or we can discuss it, um, things I've left out or that you might want to know more about. I hope this has been helpful. As I say, what I want you to do or to get is the idea that a lot of things presented in modern scholarship as fairly new discoveries, like the um, literary nature of biblical texts that you've got to recognize before you deconstruct them. um, The basic idea comes from Payne. He popularized it. Mm -hmm. And he popularized it without sort of giving it a, a sort of, a overcoat of, well, you know, really, this is scholarship. He just said what he believed, and he believed Christianity was um, terrible and he was going to get rid of it. And that's what he was after. Hmm. Okay, so I hope I didn't run <clears throat> too long, and I hope I didn't, it wasn't too condensed.
1: No, that was really excellent. Thank you, Irving. But let me get started um, while people sometimes it takes people a second to think. What I what I have a question of is you know when you were talking about Thomas Paine, it, it seemed that some of it you could have just referred to Kant, like where you know where he looked at re- religion through the lens of reason, and uh, and it seemed that there were some similarities, and he's a closer link in Germany than uh, than you would say maybe Paine, who you know a British a British aristocrat who. Who you know is a revolutionary in the new colonies, um, or in the colonies, and so I was you know wondering about that. But then you brought up at the very end how uh, the Third Reich was actually pointed to Thomas Paine as their source, um, and I, I that was curious to me that they saw the direct link that they jumped over Farback. They they jumped over um Strauss and these others it looked like they went straight to Thomas Paine and saw his contribution there uh, so uh so that was curious to me that they wouldn't have referred to someone else why was Thomas Paine a particular interest to them
0: I think one of the um answers to that question is that Feuerbach and he as I said had a great influence on Marx And the National Socialists saw themselves as opponents of Marxism, and they didn't like the left wing or the um, identification of Feuerbach. And Feuerbach later in life was very much identified with the German left, as was Strauss. Mm -hmm. So Strauss and Feuerbach were on the left. Uh, Paine wasn't. Paine was identified with America and the American Revolution. They could easily um, get what they wanted from him, Without mentioning pain, I thought about that a lot. Why don't they talk about pain? Um, some of them um, make, I mean, why don't they talk about Feuerbach and why they, don't they talk about uh, Strauss very much? Strauss does get talked about a bit more than Feuerbach. Feuerbach gets ignored uh, because Feuerbach is very directly and closely related to Marxist thinking, and that would have been bad for them. Yeah, so I think there's a a censorship there that goes on. I suspect they read him and studied him and uh, knew all about him. Some of them certainly did. I mean, there are some um, Nazi figures or people who at least supported the Nazis, like um, General Ludendorff and his wife, Matilda Ludendorff, who come very close to um, citing Feuerbach. And I think they do mention him occasionally, but uh, a lot of their writings some, uh, bring in ideas that are similar to Feuerbach's, and almost one could say taken from Feuerbach.
1: Mm. And it seems that uh, the the idea of land, it seemed that you focus quite a bit on Payne's deism and his criticism of Christian Christianity and of Judaism. But was the the idea of land tied to the American Revolution, and that's where the concept of land and idealism came together?
0: Yeah, Paine doesn't talk about land very much. It's Feuerbach and Strauss that developed the land aspect of it. But I think it is a natural development from Paine, and you do find it um, references to land and culture in his other writings, not in the Age of Reason.
2: Mm,
1: Okay. Excellent. Does anyone else have a question?
3: Okay. So, um, you know, the, uh, the, the notion of projection is all over the place these days and has been probably for many years. When Mike, I'm curious, when did you see that uh, first coming out of pain? I mean, I guess I'm curious, when, do you, when did you discover that as kind of being, you know, the originator of it?
0: Oh, a long time Uh, ago. You know, know,
3: the the, the notion
0: of of the concept of God being a projection of of a particular need. Oh, no, that that was something which we discussed at university in terms of Feuerbach. Uh, When I was a a university student at Lancaster, um, one of the people who taught me was a man called Adrian Cunningham, who was a very well-known Catholic, Roman Catholic, Marxist. And uh, Adrian was uh, a good Catholic and a good Marxist. So, but he taught us Feuerbach and uh, made sure we read Feuerbach carefully. Um, there wasn't the link to Tom Paine then. He he never made that link. I made the link later when I was reading Paine. I'd come across Paine even before I went to university, but hadn't spent too much time reading him. And then I think it was when I was at Regent College in one of my courses that I had need to read pain, and uh, then having studied Feuerbach and Marx at university, um, it became very clear to me what the source of a lot of this was. Uh, when I say having studied Feuerbach and Marx, I went to university when in 1967, and. Uh, At that time, I was at Lancaster University, and Lancaster University was um, very, it was a new university in Britain, but it was also very Marxist. A lot of the younger professors uh, were openly Marxist, and so we had to learn about Marx, we had to read Marx, um, and uh, we did. So, you know, you got to know him, and Feuerbach as well, I mean. Does that answer
4: your question, Eli? Yes, it does, thank you. Okay, Greg. Greg. Yeah, uh, thank you very much, uh, Professor Hexham. That was uh, really interesting. Give us a real background, you know, to um, all the rise of atheism. You know, we look at the rise of Christianity so much, but that was really interesting. But you made one statement I was a little curious about. You said, ultimately, uh, and I forget the total context, but Christianity won over pagan religion. And I would sort of, looking through a lot of that stuff, it seems to me that in a lot of ways, it wasn't sort of a matter of Christianity taking over pagan religion, but it was almost a merger, you know, um, uh, of of the two, because so much of, um, well, Greek philosophy and Greek thought was taken on board uh, the Christian religion. And then the whole Roman uh, form of governance was taken on by Christianity and and you know, particularly under Constantine and it altered the whole thing considerably. And so I'm, I'm just kind of, I'm not sure that uh, I would agree that it, Christianity took over uh, pag- pagan religion. And then I think the result of all that was then when you get to people like Payne and, and uh, whatnot, that it, it made Christianity a lot easier target. Like it, it, it sort of it weakened uh, Christianity. And I think, from, from a Christian point of view, the good news is that we're actually sort of getting away from that now, with you know, with with much more emphasis on the study of the historical Jesus, and looking at him, you know, in the context context of him being a, a first century Jew in a first century uh, environment.
0: Yes, um, I see your point, but I think that um, Christianity had a much deeper impact on the Roman world than. 19th century writers, uh, influenced by Paine very largely, argued, um, and in this sense, I'm disagreeing with you because I think there's a lot of evidence whether Constantine, I mean, it it seems that he became a Christian at the end of his life, Mm -hmm. Um, but the Roman Empire uh, under Constantine tolerated Christians. The, The Christians were allowed to exist And I think they grew up now Christians are always going to interact with their environment. And I don't think that a lot of the things historically that the Christians did at that time were as bad as some writers make out. Uh, I know in the 19th century, it was very popular to sort of say that Christianity had been um, really paganized. And I I think this would be a, a, a common image that was put forward. But I think that is a a mistake. The sociologist Rodney Stark, I don't know if you know him, he's argued that uh, really uh, Christianity or Europe that became Christian became Christian. And I think um, there's also another um, historian who's an agnostic, he's an atheist, um, Ronald Hutton, who's written on it to some extent. Um, And he, argues that in the Middle Ages, the Middle Ages were far more Christian than a lot of people would like to make out, that there was a solid uh, basis of Christianity and Christian belief during that time. Now that isn't to say that the Roman church didn't make mistakes and that bishops weren't uh, difficult and things like that. But I think what one also has to take into account is that um, from the rise of Islam, Europe was under uh, constant attack. And uh, that did distort what happened to a large degree in the development of Christianity. And uh, one has also got to look at the development of other Christianities, other than Western Christianity, such as the church in India, which hasn't been given as much attention as it deserves, because it, it does seem that it goes back very early and. Possibly, as they claim, to Thomas the Apostle. So I I don't know. But I I tend to think that uh, Christianity was much, uh, much better throughout history than a lot of people think. There's a very good book uh, in English, in English editions called Barbarian Conversions. And um, I'm trying to think of the name of the author. I've got it, do I have it behind me? Oh, yes, I've got it here. On the history of Christianity in Europe, Richard Fletcher. Oh, no, this is the American title, Barbarian Conversions. Where do I get it there? The Barbarian Conversion from Paganism to Christianity. And Fletcher, um, I don't know whether he was a Christian or not. He was a professor at York University, and unfortunately, he died... Uh, rather young, but he writes a very good account of the conversion of Europe. It's uh, from the fifth century on to the um, time of the Reformation. And I, I think when one looks at it in different places, uh, Christians use different techniques, and it, Christianity went up and down. Though it was polluted in some places, and but it recovered. Mm-hmm
4: i was thinking about like with the Roman influence, where there was su- such um, a tie between the Roman emperors and, uh, and the uh, Christian popes, where so much of their power and influence overlapped so much. Yeah,
0: yeah there, there are things, political uh, things that are not that good. Yeah, there's no doubt about that. But I think on the whole, the Christian belief was maintained very well. Um, they did, okay, you know, one may not like a lot of the things they did in terms of monasticism and things like that. But nevertheless, um, a lot of people were, I think, very sincere Christians in that period. And well, when it one left, it left out things out. like
4: the, I say it led to things like the Crusades and such and such. And, you know, a lot of. Uh, were, were...
0: Well, yeah, no, but the Crusades, you see, I mean, the Crusades have a bad reputation uh, today. But on the other hand, what do you do when a major army invades and is determined to destroy your country, your religion, and everything else? And the Crusades were much more a defensive war. It, it wasn't something the West wished on the world. And although they, the Crusaders fought for the Holy Land, they made no attempt to invade uh, Arabia. Um, they mm. simply wanted to protect Christians in the Holy Land and keep them out of what is now Turkey. Um, you know, the fall of Constantinople in 1483 is a major disaster for the Christian world. Um, and Christianity, as I said, has just been under pressure from uh, Muslim invaders and Christians haven't done things well always, but it's very difficult when someone is attacking.
4: Thank you.
1: Okay, um, Kevin.
5: Yeah, thank you very much uh, um, for the for the presentation. Um, there's lots to be said about what you are just talking about. There's uh, especially in reference to what uh, Rodney Stark has written. But my question is a little different. Um, uh, so you said something about uh, George Washington and, and others uh, at the time being, I, I can't remember if you said embarrassed, but uh, uh, definitely opposed to uh, what uh, Thomas Paine was, was writing. Who at the time, um, or at that time, wrote or argued against what um, Haine was writing and,
0: and claiming? I think the best way to answer that, I can't re- reel off their names, but if you go to the internet archive and you put in Tom Paine, you'll find there were quite a lot of books written around that time, around after the Age of Reason came out, there were lots of books written um, to oppose him. A lot of Christians took up the cudgel mm-hmm. and fought back.
5: Oh, yeah. Interesting, because um, I was just curious how, how ideas take hold like that and, and persist and, and, and uh, breed <laughs> almost. Yeah. Um,
0: what I think is important and which has been totally overlooked um, is the influence that Paine had on Feuerbach. And once you realize that he had a major influence on Feuerbach, uh, he had an influence on Marx. Because Marx, in his early writings, starts off, he's got his thesis against Feuerbach, but nevertheless, Feuerbach is decisive in helping shape his thinking. As is Strauss, Uh, Marx read them and was influenced by them. And so, pain is behind a lot of this, and the ideas of projection and all that sort of thing. Thank you. Okay, thank you.
1: You know, you were mentioning the criticism that Payne has toward Christianity with uh, a collusion or a syncretism of mythology, pagan yes. mythology. But it's interesting, you know, there uh, there is an increasing desire to see Christianity tied up with mythology as a part of its power. I mean, you think of Jordan Peterson uh, as one of those figures who has actually been arguing for the power of mythology and christianity having its own you know mythos or tie you know almost you know this under like this meta story and it just seems that christianity has actually had more legs the more it seems tied to mythology than than it was in previous generation i was just curious about your thoughts on that
0: yeah i think i i used to like the term mythology but i think it's misused so much people like um The Romanian scholar Murcia Aliada made a lot of it and behind his mythology was a lot of, um, really uh, his early beliefs at least certainly were fascist. Um, And then the Nazis made a great deal of mythology. Um, Rosenberg, who was their chief ideologue, who is trashed in uh, history books today, they say he was an idiot, Uh, but in actual fact, His books were immensely popular, Mm -hmm. and they were bestsellers, and people listened to him. Students flocked to hear him. Uh, So I don't think he was quite the idiot he's made out to be. And he wrote about mythology. Now, I think what one, uh, a better approach, and um, I'm just trying to think of the name of the man who did it, but... Uh, there is the idea of narrative paradigm. And I think this is better than the term myth because uh, the Anthony idea Fisher. of Anthony, Anthony Fisher. Fisher, that's right, Jeremy. Thank you. Anthony Fisher came up with this term narrative paradigm and he says, human life is based around stories and these stories take on a life of their own. And they are very, very important. That's, more important than logic and argument is understanding the stories people use to justify their actions and their beliefs and the way in which our world holds together. Uh, And I think the idea of narrative paradigm gets away from um, the sort of mystical aspect of mythology. Uh, Mythology has overtones, unfortunately, or it's been given overtones which aren't terribly good and get aren't terribly good in the sense that they become very confusing. You get into all sorts of arguments. Whereas a narrative paradigm is to simply say that stories are extremely important and they do guide our lives. And the Bible is full of narrative paradigms. You read the Bible uh, in that way. And we should be looking at the importance of stories and the way in which they affect people's lives far more than we do. And so Anthony Fisher, I think, is correct on that. Um, he was a communication scholar. I think he died recently. I'm not quite certain on that. Well, that, that's
1: great. Um, yeah, so it seems that, I mean, of the 18th, 19th century, and even the early 20th, there's a real focus on logic and, you know, almost an algorithmic way of looking at truth yes. rather than a narrative, narrative, narratival way. Uh, narrative yeah. narrative paradigm is, is, is a wonderful way to express that.
0: Yeah, I think it is. And I think, it, you know, as I say, it gets away from people like Eliade who have messed up the idea of myth by making it, there's this something something you can never pin down with it and it, it comes up and it's there and it affects the world and how we live and everything we do. And But what's he talking about? He he's never comes out and really says it. Mm -hmm. And the same with Rosenberg. He never defines what he means by myth. He uses a term and then he gives it a fascist interpretation.
1: Mm -hmm. Well, thank you. Uh, Does someone else have a question?
6: I just wanted to make one comment, uh, and I'm not fresh on this, but this mythology business is very important indeed for fascism. And that is, um, for example, the Nazis uh, understood Christianity has great value because of its time depth. And they knew that if they want to be taken seriously by by, uh, the people, they would have to have a religion that was parallel to, and older than, uh, Christianity, and that moved beyond it. And um, this, uh, by the way, um, I researched in the um, archive of the SS, especially um, at the, what's it called, uh, uh, um, Ancestral Foundation. It was a, one of 22 think tanks that the SS had. And... Oh, yeah. it, yeah and it's within within that think tank that they continuously manipulated or changed um, the Nazi world view uh, and uh, they worked in you know for example uh, the Aryan notions Indian or, or 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 Japan or any of any any kind of connection like that was turned on and turned off depending on how the war was going so fascism um, was uh, a, a, a work in progress throughout from the beginning to the to the defeat.
1: Mm-hmm.
6: Carla and I
0: have done a lot of work and discuss discussed this uh, <laughs> <an> awful lot. <laughs> She's published a book on it, New Religions and the Nazis, which um, Carla is by training an anthropologist. And she wrote this history book. So it is rather academic in its approach. She needs to rewrite it as a more popular book, but New Religions and the Nazis gives a good insight into the Nazis. Mm -hmm.
6: Um, Yeah, there, there there are also links to Arabic Islam that I traced, that I traced right back into post-war years, but, um, and in fact, there's a paper coming out with the French, uh, uh, f- in a French edition, uh, but uh, in, in, in English, uh, and it has to do with a, uh, a woman who, uh, Siegfried Honke who was uh, one of the researchers in the Nazi, in the SS think tank, in the Ancestor Foundation, and um, she survived the war, and then continued to build the myth, but now sort of um, transferred it to work in Arabic Islam. It's 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 very curious stuff. But when, <laughs> we had a conference about that in 2012 in France. But uh, it's uh, it's stuff that is um, let me put it this way: extremely sensitive and. And if it's misunderstood, it's downright dangerous. So, mm. but at any rate, the point of it all is that there is this importance of the worldview uh, and, um, and Nazism, a form of um, a form of fascism, that um, that um, continuously worked with. Um, um, well, you call it mythology, but they called it, um, they saw it probably as as history, but,
1: you know. (laughs) And so Carla, why would that be downright dangerous?
6: The link to, well, the obvious, (laughs) Uh, you know, the press stopped, the press did not publish that material because of the, um, what is it, Charlie Abdo uh, killing in France.
1: Yes. Yeah. Charlie. Remember
6: Hedden. that after yeah. that event, they um, they um, thought no, 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 no. They can't publish. Mm. It was a conference held in in France, and uh, and there are lots of papers. Mine is just a minor one, but uh, it had to deal de- dealt with this theme. Mm.
1: Uh, Liz, you have a question.
2: I do. Thank you, Dr. Hexham. That was really interesting. Um, Clark says in my lectures, I'm I'm always trying to make things practical. <laughs> so my my question is, um, how do you you see those of us who are laymen, not academics, um, how can we carry the things you told us tonight um, into our current political cultural situation? Um, whether it's in discussions with people who disagree with the Christian worldview uh, or just in our own understanding when we hear uh, different perspectives, do you see sort of a practical application for uh, what you've talked to us about tonight?
0: Yeah, I think the practical application is um, if you're getting into topics about theology and so forth, how does this, uh, what are the origins of this? And um, the story always is that Uh, You have um, people read the Bible, they studied the Bible, but you didn't have any real scholarship until the 19th century. And then you got the 19th century. And in the 19th century, you got uh, this critical history that showed that the Bible stories are unreliable and that the people who were doing this were doing it totally out of a scholarly uh, background and motive. And I think once one realizes that some of them, at least, who were doing this were influenced by Payne, who, as I said, the thing I like about him, he's very blunt in what he says. He makes no pretense to like the Bible or to like the Jews or anything like that. He says, you know, this is a load of garbage. Uh, We've got to expose this as that and we're going to say it is. But Now you get the same arguments and the point I was trying to make, and it's difficult to make, it was these same arguments come up again and again in other situations and they come up as supposedly science. So we've got all this science of uh, biblical scholarship. Now biblical scholarship is important and uh, a lot of it is good, but I think one has also got to be very careful with it and realize that there Are influences in the background, Mm -hmm. and one's got to try and look at the influences and what people are saying and why they're saying those things. Mm -hmm. So, I don't that would be the practical application, I think. Uh, but there's no easy answer. But then, for any of these arguments, when you get into arguments about biblical criticism, there are no easy, there are no quick answers, right? And I, I think also, um, the whole thing about um, mythology and uh, the pre-Christian, the the importance of church history. I think church history is very important. Christians need to know about church history, but they also need to know that there's been a lot of distortion. I mean, I think Intervasti as well, published a book fairly recently on Constantine, and it corrected a lot of the things because you have uh, certain narratives and. To a large extent, they come out of Paine's writings um, about the history of the church and how bad the church was and all the mistakes the church made. And we're then told, well, this is just the result of historical scholarship. No bias at all. Uh, But again, uh, as I said with Wellhausen, uh, there's certainly a bias in the background. There are certainly other influences, and he did read a lot of other things, and he then repeats the arguments that are very similar. So, you know, you have uh, an influence going on. Uh, This is one of the nice things, in a sense, about some of the more radical atheists, because at least the atheists are atheists. And when you get to Charles Bradlaugh and Annie Besant and others in Britain in the the 19th century, and if you get the same people in America, similar people in America, they're anti-Christian. Uh, they don't pretend that what they're doing is um, really a more sophisticated understanding of what the Bible actually teaches, you know, uh, whereas I think a lot of biblical scholarship is, um, it's tainted. And uh, I don't know how one could really rework it, but I think it does need to be thought through very clearly as to where the ideas come. I don't think it's as pure scholarship and it don't think it's as historical as um, people make out. Uh, To give you a story, my uh, PhD supervisor was a professor called Kenneth Ingham. He was a history professor. And Kenneth was a very well-known history professor in Britain, he wrote on Africa. Um, Kenneth had a very distinguished war record. Um, He'd started, I think he'd done one year at Oxford, and then he went in the army. And then he came back after the war and he uh, uh, got his PhD. And when he died, the Times of London gave him a full page obituary. Now that's very rare. Uh, But after he finished his PhD, he went to Lincoln Theological College to become a minister. And he was there for a year and then he quit. And he said he quit because the people teaching church his, not church history, biblical history, just weren't historians. He, he couldn't stand the way they were presenting New Testament criticism and everything as really historical and top work history. He said, you know, whatever it is, it wasn't history. And so he quit and became, a. he went actually to Uganda and, taught better, and then he came back to Britain. But uh, I think there is this danger that uh, a lot of Things are presented as scientific, uh, in the sense of scientific history, when they're not. There's an ideological undertone, and one needs to look for it. And uh, if you read Payne, you see the ideological undertone without any sort of um, dressing.
2: Right. So, so us taking a step back when we hear, you know, a source quoted uncritically, um, and and doing some groundwork for ourselves to see what the truth is behind it and where that bias is coming from.
0: Yeah, that's correct. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Thank you.
1: You know, it's interesting that you, you bring this up. There is a book called the I've, I've been going through it with um, called the Christian delusion by ex pastors, ex Christians, but most of them were childhood evangel evangelicals or, you know, charismatic. And, but, uh, this one guy, Hector Avalos, I don't know if you've heard of his name. No, I've not. He wrote a he wrote, atheism was not the cause of the Holy Cost. And he basically argues that it's Christians that created the anti-Judaism. Um, uh, and so when you're talking about needing to know uh the where the ideas actually come from, you know, it's you know, when you show Thomas Paine or Tom Paine as, as the source of those, of that, you know, anti-Semiticism, you can see that it's not necessarily um, with Christian roots, because this article wants to point to Hitler as, you know, influenced by Lutheran, you know, that kind of um, anti semitism
0: yeah. yeah. Yeah, this is a big thing at present, There's a, and mm-hmm. Carla knows more, much more about it than I do, that there's an attempt to sort of say that the Nazis were essentially uh, Christian. There's a writer, Steigman Gall, and he says, well, the Nazi movement, um, they they didn't like the church and things, they were anti-church, but they were Christian and everything comes out of Christianity. And this, I think, is garbage. And unfortunately, uh, it's published by some
6: good academic presses. Mm. Carla might want to add, do you? Uh, You have to understand that there is a very, very strong lobby out there that wants to show that Christianity is the source of national socialism. And um, uh, Irving, we were in a disagreement with one of those authors. But remember, when we went to Germany, um, we ran into several of them, one, you know, at the talks. And they are guileless Okay, Gailus Irving. Do you yes. remember him? Yeah, I remember uh, him. Yeah. Uh, no, uh, uh, and uh, you know, there is this uh, notion that it was primarily Protestant uh, and there are a few uh, Catholics were more resistant and um, uh, against um, uh, fascism. Uh, but uh, then people said, oh, no, we're going to show that. You know, every Catholic was involved, etc. There is a vested interest, and I don't under, under understand it, but it is, uh, it's a, it's it's there are lots of them. Uh, but you know what? I actually have the video on Irving, which was a theological college there where I gave that talk.
0: Oh, this the college that you gave the talk, and the videos is on YouTube. Was. Um... Lutheran Seminary in uh, New Orleans.
6: Ah, uh, yeah, no, it's it's not right. We're both not right. Okay. Um, but there is a okay. YouTube where I go over and I show um um how how this was done, and uh, it it uh, it just doesn't uh, it just doesn't work. Well, maybe one can send somebody for this uh, somebody this video. Um, yeah. Uh, we'll have to
0: sort out the videos. Because,
6: and, and uh, because right up. now I, I'm, I'm into a different topic and it seems my mind is not as flexible as it was. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, maybe you can uh, send us the, the YouTube link. Uh, yes, and, I will uh, do. Yeah. It's, uh,
2: it,
6: it, but it is a very, very big thing and they do, will not and do not give up because the anti-Christian... Phenomenon is also there in the Genesis uh, gen, um, uh, genocide genocide uh, studies. Um, for example, there is a, there are a lot there is a lot of um, and, and there's a lot of research being done on genocide, and in, and there are institutes of genocide now in existence, and those are also extremely secular. Um, um, historians, and again, there is this, you know, anti-missionary, anti-anti-Christian thing there. And uh, although they use for 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 certain purposes, they have to use missionary reports um, because the missionaries were in the deep of things wherever there was crisis. Uh, and uh, and and they reported on it. You know the missionaries are always between you know various governments and the people and, and vested interest groups. And so sometimes when they um, want descriptions of how horrendous a condition was, they do get it from missionary reports. But beyond that, they they would like to just uh, just uh, eliminate them. I mean,
4: Carla. <laughs> The the place you gave it was Concordia Seminary, and if you look at YouTube, it's Carla Perva on new religions and the Nazis. Oh, yeah, okay. yeah,
6: that's right. Okay. I, I gave a talk there at at, at Concordia Seminary, and, and it, it, in it, New Orleans. <laughs> <laughs> it's not New Orleans. It's far from New Orleans.
5: Saint, it's Saint
0: Louis. Saint,
6: Saint Louis. Louis. Oh, I got the place mixed up. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, yes, and that uh, uh, the, that was uh, actually a small group, but sitting in a big auditorium, and uh, uh, it was German Day, uh, something that um, um, Uwe Simonetto, who is a devout Christian, um, organized, and um, it might be something that you and you can stop it. Uh, it might be something to look at before you let yourself be convinced by these arguments that argue that Christianity was at the source of it.
0: Yes, if I can add one thing, uh, Uwe Simon Neto has done a good book on Martin Luther. Oh, yes. And, uh, refuting attacks on Luther, for Luther sort of helping cause Nazism things. Oh, yeah. Simon Neto himself wasn't a Christian until he, he was a reporter covering the Vietnam War, and that's where he became a Christian. He worked for uh, United Press.
1: Well, thank you for that. Um, Alejandro, you have a question.
7: It's kind of an extension to the answer that you gave to Liz, Professor Irving, about how this argument may influence the negative way in which the history of the church is depicted today. Do you think that is the case also in the way, it applies also to the way in which the influence of Christianity is presented in Canadian history? I recently completed a a degree in a faculty of education here that included a lot of Canadian history. And I had the feeling that the way the influence of Christianity was presented was pretty much uh, to, to show it's it's the negativity of this influence the the negative way in which includes uh influence minorities such as women um um, uh, racial minorities all sorts of um the natives and uh i have the i had the feeling that everywhere that christianity was mentioned in the curse was kind to to make that point that it it influenced negatively those groups and also in the way in which with the recent Findings that came on the news um, and the way yeah, the way that is presented. Do you do you perceive this agenda in the way um, the influence of Christianity is presented in Canadian historiography or in the recent stuff that is going on? Yeah, I
0: think that is probably true. I don't. I'm not an expert on Canadian history. Uh, my field in history was South Africa. Uh, And the interesting thing about South Africa is, and Carla will confirm this for Southern Africa generally, um, the boarding schools for kids were something which everyone wanted. I mean, Nelson Mandela and Winnie Mandela uh, went to that sort of school and they were very much in favor of them because they saw them as fighting against racial discrimination. And I I think it's a a good example uh, if one looks at someone, and I think uh, Winnie Mandela, uh, Nelson Mandela, you know, he's a great figure. Winnie was uh, all over the place in some ways. She was, um, she had really had to fight for her survival, uh, but she was a devout Christian. And this is usually overlooked. And Nelson Mandela himself was a Christian. Bishop Tutu, uh, all of your freedom fighters in South Africa, uh, well, not freedom fighters because you had some communists there involved, but a a lot of your key figures opposing apartheid were Christian, uh, black and white. And uh, that gives a very different picture. And uh, the Mandela certainly uh, didn't denigrate Christianity.
6: Can I just add something to that? You know, I did research in Namibia. And um, in Namibia, I also, for the first time, interviewed students and uh, young young people. In, in the past, I didn't. Um, at any rate, th- they mentioned to me how important boarding school was to them because, of course, it freed them from the obligation of their kinsmen. When they lived in their small, poor housing that they had, um, they were responsible to their kins, kinsmen, uh, and there are many of them, all the time. And 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 therefore, they valued a boarding school schools. So I with respect to the Canadian situation is very puzzling I've I've never done research on it but I wish people would ask some uh, questions for example I don't understand they are finding they're finding all these graves unmarked graves now now you see we need to have explained why you I mean and under what other under what circumstances do we have unmarked graves I mean, uh, the various circumstances, everything from war to poverty, to people not being able to uh, to do anything, or people not being able. I mean, we we there, we are not getting facts. We are only getting things that are painful, that are pain that are seemingly painful memories to Indigenous Canadians, and 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 of course this. As you you know, the victim status is now is now it's it's a it's a it's a major thing. It's there. It exists. We have to we have to come to terms with it. And but but the questions aren't being asked. And the can I mean we just hear it on the radio and s- sentimental things are expressed. And and where we need more details. We need more details. So. But it's interesting that you you pick that up in in school because I do think Canada is really more anti against Christianity than than Germany is by a long shot. I don't I don't understand it. Uh, Canada is that way. I don't understand it. I, again, I'm not researched.
1: <laughs> we also were speaking of this earlier, and it's interesting how the church. Uh, is blamed so quickly without asking the questions and without ever considering the role of the government. Um, You know, the role of the state in all the residential schools are never asked. And so it just seems that the church is used as the scapegoat
6: it would become much more complex when the government get involved in, because you understand, of course, with the Namibian genocide, the German government has now accepted it and there are huge reparations that go into the billions. And the thing is, um, it, if, 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 if the government became a topic, because obviously it played a role, well, then the reparations and all kinds of things will open up and uh, land, and I don't know where it's going. So, where it would go. So that you raised a good point.
0: Yeah, the thing uh, people always talk about the Truth and Reconciliation Committee commission, and uh, the big difference between the Canadian and the South African one was the Canadian Truth and Reconciliation Commission set out to um, compensate natives uh, in terms for the reconciliation. Uh, The South African one, a friend of mine, uh, uh, Charles Villa Vicentio was the head of it, uh, didn't give any money or anything to anybody. Everybody uh, came forward and said what their viewpoint was, and you had uh, people from both sides, you had policemen coming saying that they had actually killed some Africans in jail and things like that, and you had Africans coming saying that they'd killed some whites, and uh, they were forgiven, because it was a war. Uh, but the, you had lots of other things. It was The South African Truth and Reconciliation Commission was uh, admirable, I think, and they really did stress truth. And reconciliation there was no nothing underneath it whereas the Canadian one seems to me to be much more uh, problematic. I've i am not seen the same sort of openness.
6: I just wanted to add one thing where I do want to be cautious I think young people need to be very cautious with this too is this there is a link between colonialism and genocide that's being made it's very you know and so um um uh, you know, the past is full of injustices. And when you look at the missionaries who worked in these areas, among Af- Africans or, or elsewhere, or in war zones or in things like that, uh, the the stories that the missionaries tell, I mean, they give you, I mean, they're painful. and. They were very much aware that of the injustice. It had nothing to do with civilizing the natives or any of these kinds of terms. Um, it, it, the companies, corporations went in there, especially in mining, especially where you are uh, uh, reliant upon natural resources that had to be extracted. Then there was a deliberate policy made not to educate the, uh, the indigenous person uh, in 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 terms of uh, technology or or you know uh, because they wanted this labor so one has to be very very careful uh, and um, understand that there are obviously terrible wrongs that were done in the past and so social justice has now picked it up but it's just sometimes, so ideologically driven that it becomes painful. Not the subtle distinctions are not made, and details are ignored. So that's it.
1: Very helpful. Do we have any other questions? We're nearing our end.
3: Yeah, sure. I'll have another question for Irving.
1: <laughs> okay, go ahead. Okay. Right. right so, uh, Make it are tough- kind of
3: on a different. Getting back to the earlier topic on a different track, perhaps. There's a lot of talk and a lot of big stuff being written these days about uh, uh, two lines of Christianity, the, uh, the followers of James and uh, the followers of Paul, presumably. And so the, uh, you know, the legacy of James is supposed to be more authentic, and the uh, track of uh, Christianity identified with Paul considered to be less authentic. And then you've got guys like uh, James Tabor, University of North Carolina, who uh, advocates that and uh, not exactly on the same track, but maybe similar, uh, somebody that I really appreciate and enjoy reading, Tom Wright, uh, one of my favorite theologians these days He talks about the need to get back to to have a proper orientation for the Christian faith today to base our faith not on the Protestant Reformation, the time of the Reformation, but rather on the first century.
0: So just kind of interested in general in your comments on that, Irving, if you don't mind. Well, I mean, I think the Reformation was trying to base itself on the first century, but. Yeah, I, I don't know. I, um, I wish I could ask uh, Larry Hurtado about this, but unfortunately he died and he was the best New Testament uh, p- person I knew. Um, I don't really don't know. I don't like these ideas that, you know, we, we've got to create something new all the time. And, okay, so we're going to go to James and see a difference. The Nazis were very good at that. The Nazis argued, and in fact, the person who really promoted the synoptic issues was uh, a Nazi. And he he was the man who uh, actually gave Hitler citizenship. He was a civil servant as well um, in Germany. But the... Yeah, I, I No, I, I just uh, find this very prob- pro- um, problematic, the, w- the way I, I think, um, I know what you mean about right, but I do think he wants to do something new, and I think there's a pressure in academia to always produce something new, and it's very hard if you're in biblical studies to produce something new, and uh, so... Yeah, I mean, I would much rather that they concentrated a little bit more on archaeology and what archaeology apply, uh, what insights it gives, rather than speculating about texts. So I would be personally um, sceptical
6: about a lot of textual studies. You know, I, I would be curious about why he picked on James, because you see the Nazis did this thing, Old Testament out because it's Jewish, Paul out because it's Jewish. And the only one they left was, was it Mark? Not Luke. I think it was Mark. I'm not sure. Uh, so I'm wondering why at Thomas Wright says James. I mean, he must give reasons for why. About,
3: no, it's, it's not Tom Wright about James. It's mostly uh, these are folks like James Tabor out of uh, North Carolina. I think he's, he's he's probably probably more of a theist than a Christian, anyway, James Tabor is, but his stuff is all over the place.
0: Yeah, I think that's, um, James, somebody. That's problematic. I, I mean, this is one of the things I think um, That you get out of the way in which our universities operate these days, which is publish and perish. If you want to get promoted, if you want to um, go forward, you've got to have some new ideas and ditch the old ideas. Mm -hmm. And I I think that's a very real um, element that distorts a lot of modern scholarship. But I don't know whether it is distorted. I mean, he may have some real insights, but um, it's strange if the church didn't know them all this time. Yeah. Sorry,
6: Eli. You, you're more okay, up to date. thank you. Yeah, Eli. Maybe you could say you could elaborate on. I mean, it's an interesting question. I'm curious. Now I haven't looked at that.
3: Well, I'm I'm, I'm not I'm not terribly concerned about James Tabor. I I, you know, he's uh, too much in alignment with Erman, with uh, what's his name, Bart Ehrman. And so uh, I don't pay that much attention to him, but Tom writes stuff he's got he's probably got 75 80 books now mm-hmm. and I think I have about a dozen of them and uh, it's very um, they're very interesting and he just simply talks about uh, he talks about the um, the need for Christians today to uh, to look at the uh, to get their model from uh, from the New Testament rather than from subsequent generations. That's Tom Wright's approach. Uh, so, um, but he, um, you know, it's 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 interesting, and uh, I think there's a lot of there's validity to it. There's, I also talked uh, in the last few months with. Uh, with uh, David Neal, who is the uh, preaching pastor at the Church of the Nazarene. He's from Ambrose, kind of semi-retired now. And I had a chat with him quite a while ago. It's hard to get together with people because of COVID. But I mentioned this to him and he says that he's, and he's a very strong uh, early, early document scholar or New Testament scholar. And he kind of sides with Wright that uh, really the focus for the current church should be the, uh, you know, the the uh, first century rather than the uh, whatever, 15th, 16th century.
6: Oh, yeah. Okay. First. Anyway, uh,
3: so that's what I meant by Tom Wright. I'm not that, I don't have, I'm not really that puzzled by uh, James Tabor anymore because I've read enough of his stuff to know that much of it I disagree with. But uh, I find Tom Wright really, really intriguing, and enjoy his uh, mm-hmm. enjoy his
1: writing.
6: Yeah, the first century. Yes, I can understand that. I can, I can see. I think. Yeah, that's, that's kind of what I meant.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I believe that Tom Wright is really focused not just on the first century, but the influences on the first century from previous generations. You know, the Jewish heritage. Not. Yes. Not as if Christianity was born out of Hellenistic you know, adaptation of Judaism or, you know, or uh, a renewed vision from Hellenism, but that Jew- Jewish thoughts and Jewish symbols and Jewish narrative really fed yeah. into Important. the Christian narrative and how uh, Jesus as the Messiah, you know, that, you know, that the modern church has often looked at Jesus as the Christ and not realize that that's really um, pointing to their identity in, the new covenant out, um because of what the Messiah has done. So it's really the things that fed into the first century, not that it started novelly in the first century, but yeah, I, Yeah, no, that's I,
6: right. I, I, I great, great that you said that, 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 that makes absolute sense. Yes, yeah. yes, yes. And Ratzinger, you know, his, his, his books on Jesus very much emphasize those uh, centuries. That's the Jewish tradition that,
3: Yes. Yeah, that's, I think that's what I was trying to
4: say. So thank you, Claude.
6: Thank you all. It's wonderful.
4: Uh, So this was great.